Hello and welcome to Ducks on the Pond. I'm Kirsten Diprose. And I'm Jackie Elliott. In this episode, we return to succession planning, all lawyered up. <laughs> Jeez, Kirsten, you're making it sound scary. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is definitely not my intention. We've got the lawyer on board actually to make dealing with succession less scary. People just don't deal with it at all. Like they would rather die in the paddock with their boots on and all land still in their name and just let their kids sort it out. That is absolutely the best way to ensure your kids will fall out with each other. That's Helen Quaid, a lawyer based in Condobolin in New South Wales. And she's got a lot to cover in this episode from how to start the process, how to make your succession plan as legally watertight as possible. And she looks at what happens in divorce and the laws around land transfers and also some tips around good communication. We've even got some questions sent through on our social media that we're getting answered today by Helen. So let's just get straight to it and meet Helen Quaid. Well, I am, as may be obvious from my accent, originally from New Zealand. I moved to Australia in 2007 with my now husband. We met in the UK and we live on a property in rural New South Wales, just outside a little town called Trundle. I am a solicitor and I used to work at a firm in Sydney before we moved out here and had about eight years out of practice whilst I raised our three young children. And so I went back into the office in 2017 and I work in a boutique property and succession law firm in Condoblin. And it's wonderful. I really enjoy living rurally, working rurally, being part of our small community and everything that comes with that. Did you grow up in a country area in New Zealand or are you from the city? No, I'm not from the city. I definitely am from rural background in New Zealand. We had a farm, very different scale from farms in um, central New South Wales, as you can imagine. Why is succession such a difficult area? I think it's probably more complicated than other areas of the law. Can you explain why that is? A number of things can make succession planning and, and succession discussions and conversations around next steps for families. Things that make that those conversations difficult can include how much there is to go around. You know, what are the relationships like between members of the family? Are we dealing with a family of communicators? There can be very close families that don't really have conversations about things it's really fascinating every family is completely different there are different expectations and different emotional attachments to rural property if there is an awfully big pot and few children then it's always easier it's just absolutely as black and white as that because when you add in everything to the mix emotional attachments financial needs um you know people's desires, hopes, dreams, what they've, expectations is a big thing. How people have raised their children, like have you raised children who have come to expect that you will provide for them in certain ways? Really, you cannot start talking about it too early, particularly, and I think um, that is 
something that parents of young children can really be turning their mind to, not, not so much from a conversational point of view, but from a future conversation point of view. Like, who are these people that I will one day be having this conversation with? And, and what, what values do I want them to have? Yeah, I really hadn't thought about talking about succession or at least talking about the values and expectations to young kids. You wouldn't be using the term succession, but instilling values and, and understanding, it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about it. And I really have to think some more about how to make that possible. Yeah, and I think it's important to have the conversation you know, you want your kids to go out and explore the world and do what they're passionate about. But then at the same time, you don't want to turn them away from the opportunity that may be available, you know, whether it's returning to the farm after study or going from schooling onto the family property. Yeah, my boys are five and seven, and there's certainly been never any talk about you know, one of them or both of them getting the farm, never a conversation like that. They don't talk like that. One wants to be a geologist uh, and a ninja. And sometimes they say they want a farm um, and sometimes they don't. And that's just where we leave it. I leave it really open. I want them to do what they want to do. And I have this kind of thing that I don't want them to expect that they're going to get a farm. I don't know why I find that really important to me that they don't expect anything but as you said at the same time you know in the future this is what the whole farm's about to be able to support the family and have that option there but I really don't want them to expect anything or be entitled to anything it's it's a difficult dance to play and I guess it just depends on their age yeah it's and it absolutely is a privilege not a right to take on a property and you know take on the success of how a property has been run and grown from their parents and generations before so yeah I think there's there's definitely times when a conversation should happen with young kids about things just don't get handed over you've got to work hard for it and show your passion and enthusiasm I think yeah exactly so I think it's about teaching good communication skills really to have those conversations as your kids get older at that age appropriate level and communication in general is what Helen is talking about next because it's vital for when you're having these tricky family conversations. You know, l- people who are good listeners will always find the process easier because if you are willing to sit back and really hear what other people's needs are or what their values are, what's important to them about a property, it, it really does open a number of options as to how the succession of that particular family might be negotiated or navigated. It's really interesting. I've been involved in a number of different scenarios where certain people have a need to return. You know, perhaps they haven't had their own families and they don't have their own children. They haven't really started you know, we talk about family of origin and family of creation, you know, from your own perspective. So if your closest family members are your brothers and sisters and your parents, then it's very likely, and in in my experience, more often than not the case that those particular individuals will have a, a really strong sentimental attachment to where they grew up. So maintaining some sort of bond there might be important to somebody, you know, somebody else who's perhaps farming on the land might need scale you know there might be off farm assets and if there are that will make things so much easier 
but it it's be it's another reason it's difficult question is because the value of land is just increasing at an astronomical rate and it is difficult to eke a living you know to justify that value from from rural land and so there are a number of number of things driving up the price obviously i mean it's just a great investment from a capital gain perspective and so non-farmers are looking to invest, big corporates are investing, all of those things drive up the price and make it really difficult for people to actually farm it. So, yeah, there's so many, so many different things that make it difficult and, and challenging. And that's why it's, it's incredibly interesting. And you can really make a difference to a family by being involved in, in helping to facilitate a good path through those discussions. Yeah, no two families would be the same, that's for sure. When should a family come and see someone like you? I imagine that too often you see them when it's at a crisis point or something's really changed in the family dynamic and and they need to bring in you. But is it better to go and see you much earlier before situations change? So talking about me, I'm a solicitor, obviously. I am definitely... In, in a number of situations, um, helped, I helped to facilitate those discussions, but there are also a number of facilitators who aren't lawyers who practice in this area exclusively and, you know, and just really good at running meetings. So you don't necessarily need a solicitor initially, but the point you're making, I think, is a great one, which is that the earlier you can get somebody else, an expert facilitator on board better for a number of reasons even if you're a family of good communicators people always behave better when there's someone else in the room it's it's an easy trap in my experience to start talking about end results too quickly and becoming focused on outcomes and individual needs and wants and so if there is somebody else who is helping to guide a discussion around what people's visions are for the property, what their personal needs are in terms of getting everyone to reflect on what what their individual circumstances are, what they've always hoped for the, the farm in general terms rather than specific, I need this, I want that, I think you should have this, you know, et cetera, et cetera then it helps to get a whole lot of ideas out there that each of the parties can hear each other talk about. And it helps to depersonalize the conversation early. You cannot get someone on board early enough. But even before you get someone on board, in my experience, a successful family succession discussions tend to be driven strongly by the head of the family and that's that can be a couple you know like if you've got mum and dad in their 70s wanting to retire from the farm if they've got a good idea about what they want to do you know and they can talk about that and communicate that well in this um, supportive environment that is usually extremely helpful the situations that I don't welcome are when someone come, you know, people just don't deal with it at all. Like they would rather die in the paddock with their boots on and all land still in their name and just let their kids sort it out. That is absolutely the best way to ensure your kids will fall out with each other, in my experience. 
That's some really key advice there from Helen, that it's easier when it's led from the head of the family. And, you know, I was personally really lucky there that my in-laws were really proactive in this space, even before I arrived on the scene. Yeah. And I think it's either from the head of the family or the person who perhaps has the the right level head to have that sort of discussion and lead the discussions and make sure it's an open conversation with, you know, all family members and who's involved. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the only hard thing with that is you can't control what other people do. So if you don't have a proactive head of the family and you're the daughter or the daughter-in-law of parents who just don't want to engage, you know, what, what do you do? Yeah, it is really difficult. Is that then when, you know, you, you do look to outsourcing support through with like through a succession planner and or someone that can help you get the ball rolling um, to start those conversations and then find a lead? Yeah, that's that's good advice. You know, I certainly know of families where the parents are in their 80s and they still own the lot. Everything's in their name. There's no plan in place, which means the next generation, the kids are in their 50s and still haven't got anything in their name and have children of their own who are like in their late teens or early 20s, wondering what's going to happen for them. So Helen's got some advice if you're in that scenario. You can picture it, Kirsten, can't you? And and yes, it happens. It's a good thing to consider early on, or if somebody asks you to become involved in a succession planning endeavour, are there any relationships within this family that are worth preserving? You know, sometimes people will come into your office and no one speaks to each other at the beginning. Like it's it can be a completely different process if that's the case. So, or... You know, there are other families that really get on. No one's necessarily hell-bent on farming the land. And it is better for the property to be sold and assets to be distributed evenly between family members, including surviving parents, obviously, who need their retirement needs to be secure. So if somebody doesn't address these, then I can see a number of them coming up. Because as the farming population increasingly gets older and older and people are concerned about their own security and it's often the case Kristen that some of these men particularly haven't been handed the farm by their own fathers until they were well into their 60s and 70s because their own fathers didn't want to deal with it and now that they've finally got that control they do not want to give it up you know so they do they and I've got it I can think of a number of blokes in that exact position like you know so and so says I should be talking about succession I'm not doing it you know I don't want to give my land away and really really opposed to it just conceptually never mind you know the fact that there are a number of ways of doing it which means which will give them adequate security but if if you end up with a will whereby property is left to one person or even equally and someone's been farming that land for the last 30 years, and there's off-farm children who suddenly become aware of the fact that they're entitled to a third of what, you know, it it always ends in a fight. The value of the estate is significantly depleted by legal costs, which can go into the many hundreds of thousands of dollars. No one wins. Everyone hates each other. It is, it's so sad. Yeah, that really is 
the worst case scenario and the amount of families that are separated um, by these situations is devastating and just imagine how much things would be better even in small rural communities if everyone could get along yep You can buy more land or earn more money, but you can't buy a brother or sister. And now I should point out that when things go that bad, Helen Quaid doesn't actually deal with it herself. So she's a a succession planning property law expert. But if it goes really bad and into a legal fight, it goes to state litigators to fight it out. You know, I'm just saying that just in case you were thinking dodgy lawyers, they're always up for a fight. They like making more money from making everyone fight. (laughs) Well, I wasn't, were you? No, 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 of course not. So my experience mostly is dealing with people who are addressing it up front and helping them to accurately and adequately document the agreement that's been reached between the family, effecting that agreement in terms of arranging for transfers, having discussions with accountants and financial advisors about the tax implications, trying to work out the best structure, you know, way to do things structurally. And that is a multi-party endeavor. It's incredibly collaborative. No one can do it in isolation. There needs to be, you know, a lot of involvement from all sides and you end up with the situation, which hopefully will mean that there aren't family provision claims when a will is read. And a big part of that is, in my view, this notion that, you know, wills contain surprises for a family. That's just a shocker. I I am not excited at all about that prospect. I appreciate that somebody who is still alive has autonomy over what to do with their property. But if you're not having conversations with your family about what your intentions are in your will, Uh, you are leaving the door wide open for disharmony. And if you can try and sort that out whilst you're still alive, rather than leaving it for your children to sort out, then, you know, that's an act of courage and love, in my opinion. And that's what I certainly tell my clients. If you love these guys, you won't leave this to them to sort out (laughs) between them. That's a beautiful way to put it. it. It is. I mean, you just think at the end of the day, nothing's worth losing family members over. And yet it, I guess it all becomes so emotional so easily. What are the legal rights? I, I think a lot of people have done the succession plan process, particularly the son or daughter who's returned to the farm, perhaps they've got their own family and they've got a succession plan. The siblings have been looked after in some way. Perhaps they've been given some other off-farm assets or, or will be left other assets what happens if they want to challenge that like how watertight is a a succession plan that's sort of been written down in in the will and all the family knows about it when it comes to the sort of crunch time how watertight is it um okay great question so this is really goes back to the initial conversations you have with the family about succession. Who is going to be involved in the discussion? Because if you are leaving out certain family members from your succession discussion, say we've got a family with four children. One of them is the farmer and three off-farm children. One of them lives in the nearby town, but the other two live down in Sydney, say, and you are involving the nearby child because they are on board, they know everything that's going on, but you're not worrying about the other two because you think you are adequately providing for them with off-farm assets or something, 
if you don't involve all of your family in the negotiations and the plan and obtain their understanding and acceptance of the plan and, and input, frankly, to the plan, like they might have great ideas that you haven't considered. It is always a big red flag if someone comes in and says, they don't need to be involved, I'm sorting them out. Okay, that's that just says to me, look out, there's going to be a fight, <laughs> almost always. But if you've got everyone involved with an expert facilitator sitting down, providing their opinions, more often than not, you will be pleasantly surprised by with the acceptance that off-farm children have. So it's really, and this is why it so matters, it's, it's just completely dependent on what each individual situation is. Because if you've got a child who's been home all the way through his whole life, he's been home since he was, you know, left uni at the age of 25 or whatever, or did a trade and has worked on the farm his whole life, got paid absolutely nothing to start with, eventually worked up to a share of the business, has enabled mum and dad to continue to farm. You know, it might be a daughter, often it is, very often it is out here, more, more and more, and it's lovely to see. Um, and they've supported their parents and enabled their parents to continue to farm as they've wanted to and continue to remain and living in their home, perhaps on the farm and have really enhanced the parents' experience. And everyone can understand that. And very often, you know, families will know that and see that and expect that that child be provided for in the world to a greater extent. But if you're bringing everyone into that discussion and seeking input and acceptance to a proposal, whatever that is, what I do, my practice, is to document that in a family deed. There are provisions in the Succession Act which enable applications to be made. So there are all sorts of acknowledgements of independent legal advice. All parties are encouraged to get their own independent legal advice. And often I'm called upon to provide that independent legal advice to parties to a deed which I haven't prepared. So a deed will come in to me from another firm for one of the children, perhaps, in the family. And they'll say, can you have a look at this for me? What I'm expecting is this. Is this what it says? And I'll go through it and I'll explain it to them. And then they'll be able to go back. And if there need, you know, needs to be some changes, they can be made. Or if um, the child is happy with the way that things are pre prepared and provided for in the document, they can you know, sign to say that they have received independent legal advice. And then the agreement goes on to say it's a bar to lodging an application for family provision and that the parents have the ability to lodge that document with the Supreme Court in order to block applications for family provision in the administration of the will. So in my documents, the parents' wills are attached to the family deed. The parents undertake not to change their wills without the consent of the parties. It is completely open and transparent. Everybody knows exactly what's going to happen. Everyone has an opportunity to have their thoughts heard about that plan. And if there are problems, they get addressed before anything's signed so that every party is accepting. And then, you know, if somebody does try and make an application after that date, and I have not had that experience with any of the documents that I've been involved in preparing, but I suppose what might happen is that I would be surprised if the court didn't, you know, because um, often, even though the document provides that the parents have the ability to lodge an application to the Supreme Court for the 
registration of the document as a bar against making a family provision claim. They don't always do that and that because they don't feel they need to because they've gone so far down this process towards getting everyone's acceptance that they see it as just, you know, it's proper. They could do it if they wanted to in the future, but that they don't. But I imagine a family, a family law judge looking at that will be like, well, hang on. You know, you went through this incredibly detailed process and here's your signature on this document saying you accept this provision and, you know, what, what's changed? Of course, things do change in life. Yeah, and what is the divorce rate up to now? Well, divorce, as you can well and truly imagine, divides the assets. So it depends when it happens and who, who is affected. If you've got the landowning parties divorcing, then obviously that, well, I guess it, it could have the effect of really bringing forward a discussion about succession. I imagine if you're a child on the farm and suddenly mum and dad decide to leave, it's incredibly you know, upsetting for your life, which is why it's so important to have discussions early and frequently about what your plans are. And it, it, but another reason it's difficult, I guess, then though, is you know, you've got a child who comes home on the farm and you want to give them a go, but you don't know at that point if they're going to like it or if they're going to be any good at it or if they have the same kind of ideas about you or if you're going to be able to work with them on the farm. And so, you know, you might decide to pay them a wage and that's a very fair way to start. You know, this is what um, I anticipate for the next five years, you'll get the salary or whatever and we'll provide you with a vehicle. A child really needs to have their expectations managed in that situation because if the parents divorce and it's no longer possible, you know, the portion of the farm or the whole farm perhaps needs to be sold in order to pay one party out in order to provide sufficient assets for the departing partner, then that has huge implications for anyone who has been leading a life of expectation. So divorce is very hard at every stage. Oh, that is hard. I know a farming couple who were in that situation. Um, Son had been working on the farm for years for a wage. They had their first kid and really wanted to move things along. And then the parents divorced and there were big questions over whether they were going to eventually inherit the land. Fortunately, it all turned out well in the end and the divorce kind of moved those conversations on. They were at the stage where they were thinking they could earn more by working in the city and getting jobs in the city. Both of them had careers. They'd come back and had been working for about five, six years for a wage. And I know the the woman in this scenario, the daughter-in-law, felt really powerless because she didn't feel comfortable to raise any of these issues, but had this new baby, really wanted to move into a, a proper house. They were in like a shack and and trying to think, well, should we just move and cut our losses or we, we got to get something concrete and sort out what mum and dad are doing and, and where we're going to be? Yeah. And it is terribly sad when, you know, those situations do occur. Um, and the other divorce scenario is, of course, in the younger generation where the on-farm child gets divorced. That's a horrible situation. That Whatever land or assets are in the partner's names at that point, the divorcing partners will need to, there'll be an, a need to be an arrangement worked out there. So it's not a set and forget. You can't just make one decision and then it works all the time. 
it might work really well for a few years and then it might not work at all. Um, and also, obviously, you know, when I talked earlier about the size of the pot that is available for distribution, obviously a huge part of that is the size of the debt and whether or not the financiers, and this is becoming more and more difficult in my experience as well, will hand that, enable that debt to be transferred to the um, the person who's coming in to take over. And that can take a long time as well. Banks take months to approve applications and, and in some cases don't. But yeah, divorce is hard in every situation. The more debt there is, the harder it is. The fewer assets there are to go around, the more difficult the decisions are. It's just that simple. Simple. Yes, thanks to Helen Quaid, we are making it simple or simpler or at least somewhat less of a total minefield. And now we've got some questions that you've sent through to us anonymously that we're going to share with Helen and Helen's going to share her advice. And just a reminder, all advice is, of course, general. The first one from anonymous number one, what happens if you drew up a succession plan 10 or more years ago, sorting out siblings, but now the value of the farm assets has significantly increased both due to capital gains, but also your own efforts in growing the business? So Anon number one, this is Helen's response to you. The the child who is proposing to take over the farming property or children and particular certain shares or whatever, they need to have their eyes wide open to what they are doing and how they are putting themselves in that position. If your only succession plan is when I die, you're going to get this, then you are leaving that open to potentially a claim in the event as you say that assets have greatly increased in value and what parties agreed to when they said yeah it's okay for mum and dad's will to say that even if you've got a deed that says you know we accept that yeah circumstances change maybe one of the other kids has gone bankrupt in the meantime if all the assets are still in mum and dad's name then there is going to be an opportunity for someone to make a family provision claim on the basis that my circumstances have changed drastically. Mum and dad have been supporting me for years. In order to make a valid succession claim, there are a number of sort of hurdles you've got to get over. And one of them is that you have you are a, you know entitled to make a claim and children of parents who have died are in that category. But you've also got to prove an element of dependence because it's not the general principle, certainly not in New South Wales, that children are, in, are entitled absolutely to a share of their parents' estate, no matter what. But in, in your situation, children who are farming on the farm with their parents, if there is going to be an asset purchase or something, then they need to be involved in that. They need to be involved from a landowning perspective. I mean, people have their eyes open to this, hopefully, but I'd be very surprised if, you know, parents into their 70s continue to acquire land in their own name you know excluding any on-farm children when the on-farm children will be what in their 40s or or so if, if you're doing that if you're if you're a child in that situation you need to wake up <laughs> not do that anymore have the conversation with your parents start some discussions and I think that's probably the point at which often these succession discussions their parents are kind of nudged into it by the children who are in that boat saying I don't want to have a fight about this I am putting so much into this business I am bringing my agronomy background whatever it is whatever skills that child brings to the business and I am enhancing the value I've worked my guts out you know in all manner of seasons and 
it is because of my investment in this business that it is increasing in value and I want to be recognized for that. And that often is what starts the parents thinking, okay, so we better make sure we provide adequately for this person. And at that point, once you're starting to, you know, have those thoughts and talking to your neighbors and, and saying, well, who did you use? And, and getting some ideas. Once you're onto a good facilitator, you, you really are in good hands. You just need to continue to engage with the process. But yeah, it, it's very, it can be tricky if you just, or if you're in a family that refuses to engage in that process, but you are so invested in, you've got a house on the property. It's where you're you know, you've lived there for the last 20 years, you've worked and worked and worked with these expectations. If you're in that position and your parents are refusing to engage in succession discussions with you, then you really do need to start making some decisions for yourself. You can only control what you do. And if I've been talking to my children lately about this, you know, concept of spent time, like sunk cost, um, you've done that now, you've done it. You can't go back and do it differently. Uh, you need to now take control about what's in front of you because if you know your parents refused to transfer any land to you or to have a discussion with you, you know what's coming. And it's at that point that you need to decide, well, is this for me? Am I going to keep doing this? Am I going to keep farming on this property in the hope that it'll work out because that is what you're doing now? Or are you going to take control and, and move off? Ah, the psychology around sunk costs. It's so hard to draw a line in the sand and just move on if you have invested so much of your time. Another question we received was about the transfer of land and whether there is a limit to how much that can be gifted to a son or a daughter. And just a reminder, Helen is based in New South Wales, so she's referencing the laws in that state. So Victoria and Queensland, my understanding is that there is at least as good a regime in relation to intergenerational transfer of rural land, farming property in those states as there is in New South Wales. Um, There aren't any limits. There's no top value of property above which you cannot transfer land between family members. There's no ceiling, I guess, there. there. But there will be very real considerations that need to be taken into account as to how much land is able to be transferred at any one time. And those considerations are different for the parties on either side of that equation. So from the transferee's perspective, often if land is to be transferred subject to if there's debt on that land or if there is a requirement for the transferee to pay to the transferring party, the landowner, the parents often, a sum of money, how much land can be transferred at any one time will be very strongly governed by how much money that person or couple can borrow to pay what's needed to be paid for that land. So very much a bank-driven thing in a lot of cases. And it's difficult to get into rural land ownership because it's different from residential property, whereby sometimes you can stump up only a 10 or 20% deposit, or sometimes even less. But with rural land, generally, financiers look for 50%, in some cases, equity in order to advance funds. And there's no, there's no area-based or value-based limitations. So I hope that answers that question. 
Yes, I think it definitely does. Very comprehensive. Thank you. And a follow-up question is, if farmland assets remain in elderly parents' names and one or both end up in aged care, is the dollar amount calculated based on current asset value? So when you are needing old age care, the amount of money that you will pay for that care is very much determined by what assets you have at that point. And if that includes rural property, then there is, the forms are very long and convoluted, but there is the ability to carve off an area of two hectares around the residence on that property so that that part of the value of the land is not counted for the calculation of how much assets you have, but the balance can be. And it's not only the assets in your name at the time of needing care, either any assets that you have transferred for undervalue up to five years before that date will also be included in how much assets you know, you're taken to have for the purpose of paying for your own care. Now, that's very general guidance. I mean, you're, you really do need to sit down with somebody and talk specifically about um, what the assets are, how they're held, and whether or not they count towards the figures that go into calculating the money that you have to pay for your care. But as a bit of a general guide, your, your questioner, your listener is on the right track in terms of there's a red flag flying there and you need to investigate further. And you really want to get a lawyer that has empathy. Because not everything is about money. It has lasting implications for people. You know, everyone has a different love language and how they feel loved. And some people need to be acknowledged much more than paid. And if you can be a person who really needs the land for your business, but you can acknowledge someone, you know, with a few kind words, my goodness, shouldn't you do that? And that's it for another episode of Ducks on the Pond. So thank you as always for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. You can also find Ducks on the Pond on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'll see you next time.